0: welcome to another episode of One More Time, a Wind Band podcast. I'm Caitlin Nelson, and today we're going to be talking about different aspects of bands abroad and some of the cultural importance of bands in countries across the globe. We will be talking with Tom DeVoren, composer, musician, and doctoral candidate at the University of Kansas, Dr. Tom Friskello from Southern Miss University, Dr. Brett Keating, marching band director at Carroll University in Wisconsin, and Patricia Venegas, doctoral candidate at the University of Illinois. We will be discussing with them their experiences from working with bands abroad. Today's story was produced by Caitlin Nelson. Today, among other stories, Scott Schwartz, the director of the Sousa Archive and Center for American Music, will tell us about John Philip Sousa's travels to Europe. Hi, this is Caitlin Nelson, and I'm here with Scott Schwartz in the Sousa Archives.
1: Hi, Caitlin. How are you today? I'm good. How are
0: you? All right. So what are we going to be talking about today? Today, the theme of the podcast is bands abroad, so let's talk about Sousa and some of his world travels.
1: Oh, excellent. Well, you know, we we know that Sousa Band traveled extensively throughout the United States and North America, and um, he also traveled quite a bit to Europe, um, France, Germany, Holland, um, Russia. Um, And spent a lot of time touring other British um, um, colonies, um, particularly during the world tour of 1910 and 1911. Um, But the first, what we refer to as European tour for the Sousa band, as between May 5th and August 26, 1900, where the band tours between France, Germany, and Holland. And that's its principal start. Um, The first British Tour, and it's actually a tour of England and Scotland occurs between September 30th and December 13th of 1901 and it's interesting that um, you know they only focused on um, England um, with just a short side trip um, to Scotland it isn't until the second British tour of um, 1903 um, which begins essentially January 2nd of 1903 and goes to April 18th of that year, and then the band quickly slips to Europe to do several more months of touring of, of Germany, Holland, and a bit of France, and then returning to England on, uh, between June 8th and July 30th, 1903. And It's at that point that the Sousa Band first plays in Wales. Um, They had played in um, Ireland in the previous tour, but had not um, played um, in Wales. Um, um, Their third um, British tour um, was in 1905 between... January and May of that year, and two very short um, concerts on uh, January 31st and February 1st. Um, The rest of the time spent predominantly in Ireland, Scotland, um, and England. And finally, there's their British tour. um, uh, Well, I would call it the World Tour, um, but essentially, for the World Tour, um, Sousa toured all British colonies um, as part of that tour as they traveled around the world, of which they performed only two concerts on um, January 19th of 1911, the rest of the time um, well outside of the um, the, the UK, per se. All
0: right, so let's go into some more detail with, uh, you said you had some reviews to read. So we would love to hear some of those. What was the first couple of reviews about?
1: Uh, the first review was of a April 7th, 1903 concert. Um, This concert was in Cardiff. And um, the reviewer, uh, very simply, Sousa's Band at Cardiff, He writes, Sousa's music has a characteristic charm which is all its own. No other music is just like it, and no other band can give to its interpretation quite like Sousa's. Yet the audience at the Park Hall on Tuesday afternoon, though larger than that of Monday, was by no means so great as one might have expected. But those who were present fell completely under the spell of Mr. Souza's baton during the afternoon. Their applause was both loud and frequent, and the encores were many. Much of the fascination of the great conductor's arrangements is due to their infinite variety. Now... The sweet mellow strains of the woodwinds fall gently on the ear. Then the deep blare of trumpets fills the hall while here and there break in the notes of strange and curious instruments of which even the names are perhaps scarcely known to the audience." Old favorites like the Washington Post and the Stars and Stripes were enthusiastically received, and in delightful contrast was Sousa's Songs of Grace and Songs of Glory, into which the old familiar hymns and church music were delicately woven. Clearly, a wonderful review of Mr. Sousa's concert on April 7th, 1903.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Now, the the band, as I said, in 1903, performed um, twice in Wales. Um, <clears throat> the um, concert that they gave in uh, Carnarvon um, uh, was a little unusual for um, the Sousa band um, in part because um, when they broke an intermission the audience came to the stage and sang for the band. Um, The reviewer um, who starts his article Sousa and the Welshman thrilling incident at Carnivon, Sousa And his band have been delighting the people of Garnovin at the pavilion for the past two days. On Saturday night, the last performance was given and culminated in a thrilling incident. During the afternoon, one heavily freighted train after another carried thousands of visitors into town, most of whom eventually found their way into the pavilion. Soon after, seven o'clock, an immense audience had poured into the great hall, and when Sousa briskly walked up to his rostrum, shouts of welcome went up from the querymen and their wives and the sweethearts who thronged the building. After the first half of the concert, the band exited. An unrehearsed incident of a very unusual character occurred just as the band filed off stage at the conclusion of the first part of the song. A working man in a gray jacket suit, quickly stepped to the rostrum, which had just been vacated by Sousa, and invited the audience to fill up the interval by singing the, the tune, There Will Be a Myriad of Wonders. This hymn, which, as the reviewer said, had never failed, To arouse the devotion and emotional characteristics of the Welsh, the great audience rose in a body, the man in the gray suit beat time, and the pent-up enthusiasm of the audience found vent in a magnificent rendering of this noted hymn, the last three lines, which were again and again repeated. Many of the bandsmen evidently bewildered by the sudden and unexpected interpolation of this unauthorized item in the program and by the overpowering program and performance of the audience and their singing. The self-appointed conductor then disappeared And the rest of the interval was filled by a vigorous rendering of the well-known hymn, um, Tune in a Bottle. And Mr. Sousa came out from the wings and clapped his hands, returning with the bandsmen to the stage, and in a felicitous little speech declared that it yielded nothing to this appreciative audience in his admiration of the beautiful singing that he had provided to him and his bandsmen. The bandsmen signified their agreement with their leader and heartily applauded the audience in their beautiful song. When else can a, a concert artist be suddenly serenaded by an audience that um, sings two of their most revered songs? And for the, those in the audience listening, you might want to consider listening to the hymns. They're absolutely gorgeous, and you could begin to understand why the Sousa Band responded as they did to that performance.
0: For this edition of Two Minute Rehearsal Techniques, we have Dr. Eris Golden, the Assistant Director of Bands and the Associate Director of the Spartan Marching Band. Holding degrees from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, and completing a Doctor of Musical Arts in Wind Conducting from Michigan State University, Dr. Golden had a distinguished 18-year teaching career in the public schools of North Carolina. Throughout her time in the public schools, she performed at multiple conferences, worked with numerous clinicians, and premiered four commissioned works for band. Before joining the faculty at Michigan State University, Dr. Golden was a member of the faculty at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she served as the assistant director of university bands. While on the conducting faculty, she was also the music director of the 265-member Marching Tar Heels, director of the women's basketball pep band, conductor of the symphony band, guest conductor with the wind ensemble, and also taught courses in music education. Dr. Golden's research interests include undergraduate music education preparation, conductor decision-making, repertoire selection and programming, and the student teaching and mentorship experience.
2: One of the things I found particularly effective in rehearsing my current ensemble here at Michigan State has been helping them to identify layers within the context of uh, any piece of music we're rehearsing. So, for example, we just did the symphonic suite by Clifton Williams on our first concert. And if you know that piece, you know that there are many layers, multiple layers, lots of parts going on at one time. By actually isolating the individual parts and then rebuilding the parts as a part of our rehearsal time, it really helped the students better understand the piece, better understand how parts interacted, better understand how cross rhythms were interacting to create the whole, and actually in the long run helped them play with better balance, better blend, and really just more effective intonation and more um, clear intonation as we progressed. Now, in finding the layers and in doing that, my score studies evolved a little bit in that I will actually label the layers in my score so that when I'm rehearsing and attempting to pull things apart, I can very quickly move from section to section from part to part and identify who has what and allow the students to first hear again the individual parts and then we combine them and layer them back in, recreating the whole. And once again, it's really effective and not only um, supporting them and performing the piece, but also in helping them to improve intonation, helping them listen to each other, helping them play with more effective balance and blend, and and as a result, really a more overall effective performance of the piece.
0: For our main story, we will be talking with our guests about their experiences both in the U.S. and around the globe. We will then dive into discussions involving how beginners start on their instrument and learning music, how culture is involved in the band atmosphere, and how music is important in the culture of those countries. We'll be hearing from Patricia Venegas, Dr. Brett Keating, Dr. Tom Frasquillo, and then Tom DeVoren. Uh, I come from a musical family. My father
3: plays uh, Hammond organ and um, accordion, classical accordion. And so I was raised... Like listening to music at home, like live music at home, I remember that from my young age, and um, there he used he had a company many years ago, maybe thirty years ago or maybe more than thirty years ago, that used to import Hammond organs to Colombia, and then you would also he, there was this music school that was in the nineteen at the nineteen eighties. So there was this huge music program. You would learn to to play one song or two songs on the organ, and you would get some lessons from it. And it was nationwide. It was pretty uh, successful for a couple of, of years, maybe for 10 years or something. And I used to play the organ as a little kid. Um, so that was the first, the beginnings, right? Um, and then... Um, when I was older, so that was like five years old, or five five mm-hmm. to ten years old. When I was older, I went to a music academy because music instruments or at that moment there weren't bands, orchestras or anything in schools. Um, so we knew about this music school that's a private music school, different from the school, and then I started playing flute. I was going to start to be a violin player and then first time I saw the violin, it didn't have any... So it didn't sound, because it didn't have any rosin, and I was like, oh, Dad, I don't like this. It, I, I want a flute. And so I, I started flute playing at age 12 in this music school, who was uh, concentrated on Colombian music. Mm-hmm. Colombian rhythms, and but also also classical music so I was I, I had my personal flute teacher uh, and then I made part of a or- small ensemble like an orchestral ensemble and we did mostly Colombian music and I heard Colombian music at home too so it was something that was very very rare for me um, that was like from age 12 to 8 17 and then I decided I wanted to study music and then there were three top universities private universities you could start studying music and uh, like five public ones because music used to be something that if you want to go to college you have to go to public university you couldn't do it on a private one and the university i started in which which, where i teach um was one of the first private universities to offer music in in a college level so that's how i started the flute playing
4: currently i'm the director of athletic bands and low brass at Carroll University, which is in Waukesha, Wisconsin, just outside of Milwaukee. Um, Before that, I was at the University of Kansas uh, working on a doctorate. And then before that, I was in Switzerland for three years where I did a master's in performance. Um, And during that time in Switzerland is basically the bulk of my experience with bands abroad, most of which being with bands in Switzerland. Um, And that was like in the university context and also in uh, the community and professional context.
5: Well, I'm an emeritus professor of music, director of bands at the University of Southern Mississippi. Uh, I taught there for 28 years, and prior to that, I taught in the public school, public schools for 17 years. Uh, my most uh, successful years were at Meridian High School in Meridian, Mississippi. Uh, with that program, and prior to that, I pretty much had a, you know, taught in junior high schools, uh, and then I taught in Louisiana for a little bit, and then I came back to Mississippi to Meridian, and so you know, I, I had a, <laughs> I had a little bit of everything in my in my career, but I, I wouldn't ever. Uh, take anything from my public school experience. Uh, Since I was at the University of Southern Mississippi, or when I was at the University of Southern Mississippi, I had uh, many opportunities to work overseas. Most of them uh, for about 25 years were in Italy because I had a number of graduate students from Italy. My experiences were teaching band directors, and then uh, a lot of times, Uh, I would go and conduct the Italian army band uh, and then various other groups around the country. But those groups are small groups and they're generally town groups. And they're generally uh, when I say town groups, they're town bands. They're not school bands. School bands literally do not exist in Italy. Public school music does not exist there.
6: Well, the one thing I love about band in particular is it's an absolutely universal language. Um, I grew up in a rural part of West Wales where I didn't actually encounter band until I was about 15 years old. Um, uh, I, I sung in a choir in school. But I went to a private school, which didn't buy into what we in the the UK call our music services. It's the way music education is kind of set up in in Wales, certainly, and in in most parts of the United Kingdom. You have an organisation which is sometimes a private company and more often than not a local regional council um, associated organisation, whereby they provide instrumental tuition and ensemble opportunities um, for multiple schools because the areas are so rural. So it's regionally based um we didn't buy into that, so there was just small school ensembles, and our school happened to buy a tuba, um, and then lo and behold, all of a sudden, I was introduced into this this wonderful world of school music making and then community band music making and it's principally with community bands that I think that um, I've had the the most enjoyable experiences. Um, over the world. And they tend to be the same more or less everywhere. I've conducted brass bands in the UK, brass bands here in the United States, brass bands um, in in Tokyo, in Japan, in Australia. Um, And it never surprises me the amount that people are willing to give um, to create something. I initially encountered playing the tuba when I was 14, 15 years old in my private school. I happened to have a friend who played in a local brass band called the Burryport Town Band. Um, and they invited me along to a to a youth band rehearsal. I loved it. Um, the next thing I knew, I was playing in competitions. Uh, auditioning for music college. I successfully managed to get into the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama where I studied tuba with Nigel Seaman, all the while playing with my local town band uh, until I was opportun- offered the opportunity to join a- another band, a fantastic band called the Corey Band or the Bayesi View Band as they were then, and then later the Flowers Band. Um, I had wonderful experiences as a brass band player, playing at the national finals in the Albert Hall, the british open in symphony hall birmingham our regional competitions recording cds playing concerts it was um an immensely stimulating time but when i was 21 years old um i was afflicted with um, dystonia musician's dystonia um and i was unable to play anymore um i kind of wanted to keep my association with bands. it becomes an integral part of your life you know you're spending three nights a week in some cases with these people so to um to, to not have that camaraderie, that friendship and that satisfaction for music making after you've had it for so long and so regularly was um, w- was a big change. So I wanted to find a way to still be involved with band. Um, so I set up a youth band at the Flowers Band, the band that I was involved with at the time. Um, and I began to compose um, for band i'd always kind of written for brass quintets that i played with in college or done some arrangements but i began to for the first time seriously start experimenting with composing for band and um, i was lucky to have mentors in my former tuba teacher nigel seaman philip harper who's now music director with with the corey band among several others who helped me nurtured me philip in particular um helped me get my first piece for brass band performed and published um Um, And the rest is history, really. In terms of starting conducting, um, I remember about two years into this journey of composing for band, I became composer in residence with a band in Wales called the BTM Band. Their conductor happened to be sick one night and they were running some of my music through. I think, again, I was about 22 years old. And um, they said, would you like to, to come and conduct through your music? I'd never conducted before. I'd only had the experience of watching conductors. I'd never studied conducting. Um, but I went and took the rehearsal and found I had a natural aptitude. I took some, some private lessons with, um, various conductors, again, with support of my former teachers. And the next thing I knew I was conducting them in our local Welsh contest six months later. And then a few months after that was conducting them, um, at the British open at the all England masters, our biggest brass band contest. And it was a baptism by fire for sure. Uh, and I learned an immense amount during that time, but it's um, yeah, an introduction to to being a conductor and a, and a composer that I that I really wouldn't change for the world. It was one whereby um, having a love of what I was doing and having a solid support network around me was the foundation, rather than simply learning um, the basics of of, of, of of beating time, for example. So uh, I'm currently a, a doctoral assistant in wind conducting at the University of Kansas, um, studying for my DMA with um, Paul Popiel, um, which is a wonderful experience. As a composer, the University of Kansas have commissioned me previously over previous years. Um, so when I decided to make the transition to the U.S., um, which has come off the back of um my music for wind band being relatively heavily performed over here now over the, the past few years i've been fortunate to have performances with bands like the president's own the us air force band um the west point band and and fine universities in here in the us and in canada such as um university of nevada las vegas university of kansas obviously montclair state university um so it, it feels like a home from home here in kansas really Uh, And I'm fortunate to be here with um, a great staff in Paul Popiel, Sharon Toulouse and Matt Smith and great conducting colleagues, too, in Bethany Admerson and John Leonard, who are my my fellow DMA candidates.
3: I think in the in the beginning steps of of, um, learning music as a language in Colombia, it is maybe not at the college level. It could be, there could be more Colombian music taught at the college level. It, it, we are so uh, um, busy trying to teach students uh, Western music and all these standards of, of music and the, and, the, and the big, the top composers, you know, how it is and the top styles and all of this that we forget about our own music. But at an initial level, um, there is contact with Colombian rhythms. Vocal music is first, right? Mm. Um, so in schools in Colombia, there are there aren't any policies, like educational policies, that say there has to be a choir, a band, and an orchestra in every school, neither uh, public nor private, and that is a huge uh, difficulty we have in in Colombia. And so because we have that gap in the education, like culture has been a responsibility of another area different than schools. So and let's say if you live in a big city uh, like Bogota, uh, there would be uh, small, smaller schools in the city that they all belong to a bigger program that is funded by, by the city itself, like cultural program. And you would go, everything that's going on is extra, extra time, extracurricular from school. So if you wanna go to, um, uh, to learn an instrument or dance or learn something with arts, you would go to that like uh, neighborhood music school and learn it there and not necessarily in your school. But schools in Bogota that have the possibility of having music programs, um, they would begin by vocal groups, choirs, and many of, of the first step melodies you play or you sing with the kids, well, have to relate with the culture. You know, it's end of the year. So it's Christmas carols. So Christmas carols, they're related with your culture um, or it's um, we we celebrate, for example, uh, Columbus Day. So Columbus Day, what in our, our way of seeing things, it's like a race day. It's called the Day of the Race in, in Colombia. And so we would. Um, enhance or um, what our ethnical identity by dancing, singing, gastronomy. And we would make families meet together and eat the special traditional food of the of the region or of the country or whatever, and see the kids sing, play or dance their own um, folk music, um, which is nice, which is a nice tradition
4: this depends on their upbringing. Um, and what I mean by that is, so like I said, most people play in a wind band. Um, and you know, they st- just, they still start young with lessons and everything. Um, but if you are in an area or a town and you have a brass band, um, those musicians start very young and very intense from the beginning. Um, because the brass band culture is so geared towards competition, um, the students who are involved with that from a young age, play at kind of a scary level. So they just have a real emphasis on getting better really, really,
5: really quickly. The bands in Asia and Australia are much more like the bands in America in that they are, uh, they are Trained in much the same way, uh, they are in the schools, and the students all take private lessons for the most part, and and then they have a band director in the school or schools. Uh, now, there that that varies depending on the uh, depending on the province. You know, like if you're in Queensland, it varies between New South Wales and and places like that. But uh, there, there are some some really very good bands. Uh, Jemima Bunn uh, played at the Midwest a couple of years ago, and and her band was was really quite good. She uh, she has done great work there, and has now she's been working on a doctorate, and has now just finished one, uh, and with. Uh, John Lynch at uh, the Sydney Conservatorium, they call it Conservatorium of Music, but that's, those bands are much more like ours. Now, the bands in Singapore, the bands in Asia, uh, the bands in Hong Kong, the bands in China uh, are much more like uh, uh, American bands because they're modeled after American bands. When I was working in Hong Kong, basically I was working for a Disney. It's a Disney, you know, a festival, and uh, I worked there maybe two or three years. I don't remember uh, for them and. Really enjoyed it. It was really, really a nice experience. Uh, I heard some really good elementary bands and middle school bands. And so I worked with them and then they left. And some of them were from Singapore. Some were from, uh, Hong Kong. The bands in Australia are, are, are pretty much in the schools, you know, they meet varied, they're they're varied times, they meet at varied times. They don't always meet every day of the week. Sometimes they meet once a week. Sometimes they meet in the morning at seven o'clock. And uh, one day a week. Sometimes, uh, you know, some schools have banned every day, but it just depends on the school. Carl King speaks of how he got started in the band and and he said we didn't have any school bands in those days. He said we only had band and he said I just learned to play in the town band. I learned to play I went and picked up a euphonium and one day I learned to play or trumpet. And I, you know, that's the way people learn to play. And that's the way people learn to play in Italy as well. And Europe for the most part. Uh, The Netherlands is the only country that has uh, a system much like ours. You know, the, uh, the Italian system is, oh, it's sporadic and, and, The way you learn to play an instrument is you just go and decide what you want to play, and you sit down in the town band, and the man next to you says, well, this is the fingering for B-flat.
6: There are two different strands of education, broadly speaking, in the United Kingdom, our public school system and our our private school system. Uh, I happen to be in our private school system, which is a choice by my parents, um, and there were positives to it. In fact, I don't believe I would have encountered music in the way I did had I not been in that school at that time, at 14, 15 years old, um, the school happening to buy a tuba and me really wanting to play it. um, That, you know, was was serendipity. And two decades later, some two decades later, it's it's afforded me a a very satisfying life and career. Um, But in terms of the way music education is delivered, in the classroom, you have band classes here in the US, which is something that always... Uh, always amazes me. We don't have that. Our music taught classes are, I guess, kind of akin to your music appreciation classes, where you're taught listening skills, you're taught oral skills, you're taught music history, you're taught to recognize music of different genres, you approach um, the, the national musics of your particular countries, so you study Celtic music, and this is all through Uh, in Wales, this is all through a uh, a, a rigid exam system. So when we're 14, 15 years old, we do something called our General Certificate of Education. And when we're 17, 18 years old, we do something called our A-levels. So like you would have for mathematics, English, science, there are graded programs of study for music. And although you can perform as a part of that, performance isn't a specific part of the instruction for that. You would do that with a in your school, but with an independent teacher, what we would call a peripatetic music teacher. They would either be a private entity, a company themselves, or they would be part of something wider called a a music service, which are organized regionally. Um, The wonderful thing about the, the the music service system in, in the United Kingdom is how it's is connected to national groups. So when you are under 18 or under 21 in some cases, um, you can qualify to play for our National Youth Brass Band of Wales, National Youth Brass Band of Great Britain too, and wind orchestra, choir, orchestra, musical theater, so on and so forth. And there is a progressive system by which you're able to get to that. So there are regional bands based on multiple counties, um, there is your independent county band, which is an amalgamation of students from several schools via audition, which go to represent uh, a smaller region, and then your school ensemble too. And you're actually only able to represent your country uh, on the highest level if you participate in all of the all of the steps. So your school band, your regional county band, um, your multi-region county band, and then finally your national band. The national band tends to be residential and happen once a year for either a week or two weeks. Um, and judging by region, county, and three county bands change. Some of them can be one rehearsal a week on a weeknight. Some of them can be a more intensive rehearsal weekend around holidays. Um, but what they do is they, they, they afford young musicians a fantastic opportunity to not only see where they can get if you're 14 years old and you're looking at a 21-year-old a bass trombone player, for example, um, in one of the national bands, it gives you something to, to aspire to. And there's also a great sense of camaraderie and support where older players help younger players. But it also allows you to um, engage with some of the foremost Um, composers, soloists, and conductors in the band or orchestra genre?
3: So, what usually happens in the United States, which is like formal mm, band or orchestra vocal programs at schools, that is not affordable in Colombia in in public schools. But private schools, some of them have adopted the system. So, they've, they've realized that music and culture and the arts are very important for the um, the education of the whole person. You, you, you talk about that, right? And, and according to their um, economical possibilities, they, they make, they offer music programs. Um, so they would have, at the beginning stages of learning, um, you would have vocal learning, uh, and then you would choose an instrument, maybe the teachers, some, some schools would have teachers, instrumental teachers that would do concerts and open house day for the student to be able to choose an instrument. Some programs uh, use ORF orchestras or ORF ensembles as a transition between vocal singing and instrumental and like, like band orchestra formats. And that's pretty popular and that's pretty successful. And this happens, this, that happens in schools, private schools, happens in parallel in these um, public, not in the public school, but in the public music schools or art schools in the, in the little neighborhoods and especially in towns. So our big band movement in Colombia comes from towns, not from big cities which is just how it works. Um, There has been uh, national funding from the Ministry of Culture funds these programs. And the program is uh, dedicated especially for students in middle school, high school, like in school level before before they're 18, uh, that live in towns because it's an extracurricular activity and you... um, fill their time with worthy uh, exercises or worthy time. Like what what can you spend your time uh, successfully? And so it is um, music schools in towns funded by the Ministry of Culture and the town itself. That's the funding. Maybe they do charge students, but the fees not, not relate with what it costs and then students um, make part of that group, either orchestra or band, or the choirs do continue, or dance. So in Colombia, there is um, a big competitive um, atmosphere in bands. That doesn't happen in the orchestra world. And so why has this happened? Because there are band contests. And then you, you you hear the people from the, from the other town and from the other city in the contest. And you wanna be the best and so you try hard to be the best and you rehearse afternoons and Saturdays and Sundays to be the best you, from your town. And kids get to go somewhere else for the contest. So it's just fun, it's a very social activity. Uh, parents get involved. The whole city gets in, or town gets involved. And this doesn't happen in big cities. Because, well, unfortunately, well, it's just big cities. It would happen in neighborhoods, and it's not real. So when these students from the little towns, which have studied their wind instruments, and they have fun, they've had fun, and they've been able to, some of the bands in Colombia take the students to, to Europe for contests. They're doing great. It's just incredible, the level they are uh, reaching. And then they, they think... This didn't happen before, but they think that they could be professional musicians. These will have youth programs like a conservatory model uh, with younger students that go uh, after school and on Saturdays and they go to, to, to learn music with the same teachers that they would have when they were in college, which is really cool. Super cool. It's not affordable for everyone. So there are private and also public universities with these programs. But it's the way for students to be able to study parallel to their school, because their school is not going to really offer them a musical education, like a strong musical education. Not all of the schools. Some do now, but back then, no.
4: Obviously, in the U.S., the general model for Bands um, at the university level is um, the entire semester, right? So everybody's in rehearsals, and you have like I don't know six to eight weeks of rehearsal, and then a concert or something like that. Um, in at the conservatory that I was at, uh, it was all project based, so all of the large ensemble um, were project oriented, meaning that so the wind ensemble would maybe have six concerts a semester instead of most places having like three, two, three, four, maybe. Um, so it was six a semester, but each concert was a totally different set of musicians and it was a, a week commitment. So it would be rehearsals Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, and then concerts Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So it was much more, geared towards getting people prep for the professional life as a performer where you don't have weeks and weeks and weeks to get prepared, um, right away from the get go from the first rehearsal, you're expected in all your parts. Um, and so it was just three rehearsals to kind of figure out the music as it were and not, um, kind of technical aspects. So that's probably the biggest difference from the educational side of things. Um, from the community realm, in switzerland anyways bands are just a way of life um both brass band and wind bands um and each town or village has probably two wind bands if not more um and it's very much a part of their regular life everybody is involved in music somehow, and most of them are involved in bands, um, and a lot of people play in multiple bands. So they're in you know rehearsals. You know they they might be a lawyer or a doctor, but then three nights a week they're traveling to the neighboring towns to play in wind bands and brass bands. Um, and so what that leads to is that because it's a part of the culture, the big difference that I've noticed is people show up to the concerts there.
5: Well, in Italy, I taught conducting with band directors. They don't have conducting. Uh, if you want to study conducting, you just have to go and study with an individual. Uh, for instance, uh, you know someone whom you admire. Uh, I had uh, the opportunity. I taught in Sicily. I taught in uh, northern Italy. Uh, I taught in the Rome area. Uh, and and the the band directors basically just have they're they're on their own. I mean, in in the if you go to conservatory, if you want a, a diploma in music in Italy, you go to conservatory. If you want a degree in music, you have to go to the university, one of the universities, and get a degree in musicology. And uh, that I mean, for most band directors, that's that's not what they want to do they don't want a degree in musicology
6: um in Australia, for example, um, I remember several years ago I worked with a, a conducting friend of mine called Jason Katzakaris, who conducts a band called Gunnada Shire Band who are a, um, a local Australian uh, a band, but they're an elite band. They've won Australian championships. I say local as the, the town of Gunnada that they are in is incredibly rural. It's about five, six hours away from Sydney. To be able to rehearse, some members live in Sydney, some members live in Gunadah. They would literally drive... Five hours on a Friday night, late, get into Sydney, super late in the evening, rehearse all weekend, drive through the night to get back home, um, to go to work on Monday morning, and then reciprocate. The Sydney folks will will travel to Gunnedah. Um, and they make this this fantastic art music, entertaining art music for, for, for brass bands that only exists because of... Um, the desire to have uh, a hobby band, it's incredible. We obviously have to highlight the the difference in tradition here between brass and wind band. That is something that is specific to, to countries, although now more than ever, perhaps, those lines are being blurred. Um, the United States is traditionally a wind band country, but it now has a burgeoning brass band mov- movement with the North American Brass Band Championships, the U.S. Open um, Brass Band Championships, which are actually here in Lawrence, Kansas, in only a couple of weeks' time. Um, I head off to Austria Tomorrow, um, to conduct a, a brass band at the university um, in Graz. However, Austria is also a traditionally a wind band country, but it now has a burgeoning brass band country. On the flip side, the United Kingdom is very traditionally a brass band country, and and kind of only has its wind bands within a within a military context. Um, as such. Um, the competitive culture of of brass bands in the UK breeds a very intense rehearsal practice. So if you're an elite brass band in the United Kingdom, you could be rehearsing every night for two weeks, for two, three hours a time, all day on a Saturday or a Sunday, um, in preparation for a major competition. Take that down to Australia, then geographically locations are much further apart, um, and that kind of rehearsal practice just isn't, isn't something that's possible. Um, so they do more intensive rehearsal weekends. Exactly the same happens with bands in Sweden. I've been fortunate enough to have a good relationship with um, the Windcourt Brass Band in, in Sweden. And they are a band made up of uh, professional musicians in military bands and orchestras who just love to play in brass band. Uh, and teachers and high-level hobbyist players, because of their professional commitments... They're just not able to rehearse every evening because there are rehearsals or performances. So they get together for very specific, pocketed weekends. I think there are – there are, although the aim is still the same, to come together, share fellowship and create art – And in the case of contesting, create a little bit of sports, have a little bit of a buzz for creating sports. Um, Practices are are, are different, very, very different all over the world. And I think it's not just the culture and the musical culture of specific countries that impacts on that, but the the culture of specific organizations too, and the people that play in them.
3: They have had the freedom before, you know, the freedom that the music, traditional music in Colombia, Traditional music gives you some freedom in the time that's not that strict and you learn it like generation through generation and You don't really have to play what's strictly on the music. You have to learn that that's not The music's not in the paper. This music is in you. That's just a guide and when you go to classical music um, or a more traditional way of learning that could be more American it's hard to give freedom of playing, of performance. So the student struggles in in America because um, he can't be very free. The idea is to be all together on time and very disciplined in time.
4: So I think one of the coolest things um, about and I'll isolate this to the wind band culture in Switzerland, is that because it's such a community-building event, um, the community bands in Switzerland are totally multi-generation ensembles, where if you go to your average community band, at least in Wisconsin um, and in Kansas, um, at least the ones I've been to, are generally the age skews quite old. Right. Um, and the average age is probably retirement or later. Right. So we're talking about people in their 60s and 70s in the US. Um, and in Switzerland, the, that's not the case at all. It's actually like a pretty even distribution of youth, you know, people who are 12, 11, you know, around that age, all the way up to retirees um, and active music professionals and also people who, you know, have more traditional day jobs. So because you have this multi-generational spread of age, it kind of builds on itself in terms of the momentum and the excitement about being a part of music and continuing with it after high school. Um, I have done zero research on what I'm about to say, but I suspect that if you looked at everybody who played in band their senior year of high school and you took a percentage of people who never played in band. After they graduated high school, I suspect that percentage would be quite high uh, in the US, uh, where in Switzerland, it the drop off rate is really low. And so it just establishes um, this kind of pipeline of continued interest in music performance and also... Um, being an active participant or an audience member, right? So these clubs often go and they support their neighboring towns, um, concerts. And it's usually a pretty big festival where, you know, it happens in like a school gymnasium or somewhere it's not particularly fancy, but the gymnasium is full of tables and everybody comes for a meal and they're eating and drinking and having a good time. And while that's happening is when the band is playing. So they also just treat music in a different way where it's really, um, sometimes I think they do a really good job of harnessing the fun um, where in the U S that's not always the case. I feel like sometimes it's so closely tied to music education. Um, it's hard to break away from that. And then, so once people are done being educated, right? Like once they graduate high school, they no longer are part of a band because they're not a part of that education pipeline. And they kind of see it that way as opposed to just continuing their passion and interest in music. and that especially includes people who aren't professional musicians, right?
5: That's the big way that band is kept alive in Italy. Uh, there, Every town has a, a padrone, a patron saint. And uh, <clears throat> that on every year, the patron saint's day involves a town band. And so the town band... Plays for procession to bring the patron saint from the church down to the main square, from the main square up to the up to the the church in the town. And depending, I mean, it's a towns as big as Milan, Rome. I mean, you know, or little bitty towns like you know uh, Sacrofano. Small towns uh, will have a town band that will play uh, uh, for. The Saints' Day, and and uh, they have made that tradition, maintained that pred- tradition for centuries, and and I don't think that bands in Italy will ever die out because they have that tradition of having the Saints' Day and the band playing for the Saints' Day. Uh, they also play for feast days of of various sorts, you know. The Italian town band is, is the, uh, mainstay of, of the, of the Italian band tradition. And that's how they keep it going. I mean, kids learn to play in the town band. I mean, you will see them coming down the street and there will be 85 year old men and women playing in the town band and, and seven year old boys and girls, you know, playing in the town band. And they, they play, uh, down the street. They just stroll down the street. And much of that tradition was brought to this country as well. In, in New Jersey, New York, uh, less of it has carried over in the rest of the country. Uh, you know, uh, they I have a very close friend who's from New Jersey, who played in the town band when he was a little boy. Uh, he's from Raritan, he played uh, the bass drum. <laughs> and so he talks about playing the bass drum, you know, for the feast days,
6: the brass band thing in the U.S. is something that intrigues me. You kind of had this early setting up of, of, of bands like the Gramercy Brass Orchestra of New York and, um, and Brass Band of Battle Creek as these entertainment entities, which weren't really quite traditional brass bands. They were traditional brass band in setup, but they play American repertoire in this very American way. Um, now with the... Um, which is not a bad thing, by the way. I think it's, um, it's created a whole other subgenre when you look at Pittsburgh and River City Brass right now um, with Dr James Gourlay and you look at the creative programs that they make and the the following that they have they've kind of created a subscription series which many orchestras would be envious of and they are a, a functioning brass band traditional brass band if you will um in terms of competitive culture, it's really heating up. We have the U.S. Open Championships here in, in Lawrence, Kansas at the Lead Centre coming up in a couple of weeks' time, where I think we have 10 bands entered. Um, I say we, I'll be one of the adjudicators. I'm not actually um, part of the organising committee. And um, you look at the North American Breastband Championship, um, some 20, 30 bands entering the elite level contest requiring to play two major works. Um Yeah, it's absolutely fully embracing the original um, style and sentiment of competitive brass band playing. And I think what we're talking about with composition and what we're talking about with the assimilation of other styles and genres by other cultures only serves to enrich what we do musically.
3: You know, my whole perspective of, hey, what we're doing is good. People like it. And what they mostly like from my Colombian band, or Colombian bands in general could be. Can be a good technical level, but it's not the technical level, but the level of musicianship. The making music together. That is a little different in the system from from our Colombian system than here. So that's something I have uh, perceived in these years. Um, In Colombia, the conductor, no matter the age, no matter what age, the younger, younger generation of conductors is nearer to the students as music makers. So we involve the students into the process of music making. So the conductor is not the only person to have the answer for the question. And you try to make students participate in the decision. Like, do you like this temple or do you not like this temple? Do you feel comfortable with the temple or not? I'm, I'm a, I, I as a conductor, I'm not the only judge to say it's the right thing. That makes a little difference than when you're the only person taking decisions in a big university band, for example. Like you can't, you can't, you don't have the space to share musical decisions with the people, with the students, and if you do, they don't answer back. It's, it's a little strange. I've tried it, and I think that's what makes the the music sound a little fresh in, in the Colombian interpretation. And yeah, the, a little loose from the strict uh, boundaries of music making.
4: Every concert is sold out, and it's really well supported um and it uh they have a a word that basically translates to social club so a lot of these bands are viewed as social clubs it's a place to network and see what's going on in your area um, and a lot more than just playing music um also because of the educational system in switzerland most people are actually quite advanced at their instruments so the repertoire is a lot different they do do some of the classics we think of in like the U S right. We we think of like Holst and Granger and, you know, some Sousa marches, you know, these kind of cornerstones of our repertoire in Switzerland. Anyways, that's not necessarily a part of their musical DNA. So they may occasionally program Holst, although it's pretty rare. Um, they're much more willing and excited about programming, um, arrangements of Swiss folk tunes and original compositions by European composers, um, uh, German, Italian, French composers. Uh, there's a lot of crossover that doesn't, that hasn't come over to the U S yet. And those composers are kind of flourishing but in particular with Switzerland. Um, the other big thing that I would say about at least Swiss bands is because of the government, um, a lot of these projects are federally funded so it's not exactly easy but it's it is kind of easy in some regards to get funding for concert cycles and ensembles and oh we want to get this instrument i'm going to write a grant and the percentage of getting a grant to support the arts in switzerland versus getting like a, a national endowment of the arts grant from the u.s is i mean it's totally different right And for the U S for us to get an arts grant, you have to have an organization that is already really well established and shows kind of the long vision. Um, and in Switzerland, if you have something unique and you're new, um, you know, I think the funding rate, I don't know the exact number, but I think it's over 60% um, of arts requests get funded. Um, and that also goes to show, the people's willingness to vote in politicians who support the arts, because um, it's just something important to their to them as a culture, right?
5: I have learned a great appreciation for the system that we have in this country. Uh, when I seen what they do there, uh, I have understood what we do here. Now I will say this uh, when they, they don't take any prisoners in Italy. When you want to learn to play the clarinet, you play the clarinet. You learn to play the clarinet in the proper way. You learn to play it with a really good embouchure and a really good hand position. Otherwise, you just learn to play another instrument. You know what I mean? They they uh, they really are very insistent upon uh, you know upon. The, the method of playing an instrument and the way, the correct way of playing an instrument.
6: Well, I think that the internet is the universal leveler in this, right? Um, whereas before we had these isolated uh, pockets of community whereby we would only see brass bands spread out to Japan if somebody who was interested in it and enthused in it had physically taken it there themselves, exactly the same with the US and exactly the same with Australia too. Um but now you can log onto the internet and see um, amazing American wind bands playing in, in the UK. It's how the music of people like John Mackey, Michael Markowski, um, David Maslanka has, has, has permeated the European market, I feel. Because you know amazing, amazing music has been being composed by... Tangented to composers now. Sorry, um, been composed by uh, American writers since since the 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 the, the mid eighties. Obviously, when you're talking about Johann de May, um, creating his Lord of the Rings symphony. I may have got the date wrong on that. I don't know. But unless you have a means um, of people accessing this music. Um, and accessing the way you play this music in particular, um, like the internet, then there is no way for, for cultures to spread. They are isolationist. And I mean, that has led to some good things. I mean, if you look at the very strong tradition of stylish playing in American and British band, military windband playing, two completely different ways of of of, um, of approaching marches, for example. But we're now able to hear both of those ways, both of those approaches, um, just simply by logging on and going onto the Marine Band Archive and seeing and hearing their Sousa transcriptions or logging on Facebook and going to uh, the Band of the Welsh Guards that I am fortunate to be composed in residence with and being able to see them rehearse their marches, being able to see them march to, to Buckingham Palace. So what was, I guess, an isolationist um, kind of thing whereby ideas of performance practice and, and and style within the genre were very, very pocketed off. Um, now, musical styles are spreading, specific composers are spreading, and indeed we see um, specific genres and groups spreading. Um, and yeah, that's, that's one of my most sort of enjoyable, I think, experiences internationally is seeing that there is absolutely a common thread um, which is uh, a love of making music and a necessity in people, like-minded band people, to, to come together and make music.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of One More Time, a Win Band podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to share it on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and help more people listen to and enjoy the show. If you want to stay current with Illinois bands between episodes, follow us on Facebook, join us on Instagram at Illinois underscore bands, or find us on Twitter at Illinois bands. You can always check out our website for more information www.bands.illinois.edu. The executive producers of this episode are Dr. Anthony Messina and Stephen Cohn. This episode was hosted by Caitlin Nelson. The mixing of the episode was done by Marcello Champion. Of course, none of this would be possible without the Illinois Bands faculty. Dr. Steven Peterson, Director of Bands, Dr. Linda Morehouse, Senior Associate Director of Bands, Dr. Elizabeth Peterson, Associate Director of Bands, and Barry L. Hauser, Associate Director of Bands and Director of Athletic Bands. Illinois Bands is part of the School of Music at the University of Illinois and the College of Fine and Applied Arts. We would like to thank Dr. Steven Peterson, Scott Schwartz, Dr. Eris Golden, Tom Devorn, Dr. Tom Frascillo, Dr. Brett Keating, and Patricia Venegas for their contributions to this episode. We hope you will join us for our next episode of One More Time, a wind band podcast.